My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, ah, we're doing a little bit of a self-indulgent episode. Folks, if you are listening to this podcast for the very first time, don't start with this episode. Start with another episode, because on this episode, Justin and I are going to be talking about our vacation. Then again, if they do want us crystallized, I think this is a good episode to start on. Well, a lot of things that are of mutual interest to us will be discussed in this episode, because we went to the Mahoning Valley in Pennsylvania, way out in the sticks, and we went to a place that we've wanted to go to for a very, very long time, the Mahoning Drive-In. This place is heaven on earth because they show culty and exploitation and trash movies on 35 millimeter film all year round and that's all they do i was looking at their summer schedule hoping against hope that i would see something that i could convince one of my friends to drive us to because i personally don't drive i don't have a car so i need to somehow generate enough interest in someone that is a good friend to go to one of these driving things and oh boy they were doing a schlock around weekend and when we looked at what the schedule was will instantly said let's go yep we're going to this no contest well i don't want to spoil what it is we'll go through it beat by beat with the big reveal coming at the end with i would like to maybe bookend this episode though with one particular subject i am gonna leap to the very very end and tell you about a tourist attraction that we went to about an hour away from the drive-in which was not planned until we got to the hotel room we were staying at yeah so we got to our our crappy motel and you know, the Three Stooges just happened to cross my mind, as they always do. Mo, Larry, Curly, Shemp, Curly Joe Dorita. These are men who are constantly playing around in my conscious and subconscious mind. And I remembered, oh yeah, there's a Three Stooges museum somewhere in the United States. I, I, I think it's on the West Coast. I should do a trip there someday. So I googled it, the Stoogeum. And would you believe it? It was in Pennsylvania. And not only was it in Pennsylvania... But it was open. You have to make an appointment to go because they're a pretty small operation. And we did it holding our breath, deciding, listen, even if we don't get confirmation of the slot that we picked, we will show up on that day and make like puppy dog faces to get in if that's what it takes. Everybody listening to our podcast, every regular listener, every casual listener needs to immediately book a trip to Pennsylvania to go visit the Stu GM. We spoke to multiple people who said, oh yeah, that is close by. I should go visit it. And it's like, what are you doing with your life? Oh my God, I would drive another 10 hours back <laughs> tomorrow to see it again because the Stoogeum, the, again, the Three Stooges Museum, words fail me, th the stuff they have. Well, so when you hear that, you think, oh, it'll be like a few little things here or there. Maybe there'll be a small television playing Three Stooges shorts. How much stuff can you actually visit through in a museum that involved the Three Stooges? Well, dear listener, picture in your mind the most well-laid-out museum that you can see. Fill it with just stooges, memorabilia that they owned, info cards, posters, Everything you would ever want to see about the Three Stooges is in this museum. All six Stooges are well represented. In fact, all seven, if you count Ted Healy, their boss in vaudeville. Everyone connected with the Three Stooges in any capacity has has a little exhibit to them, memorabilia-wise. Does Emil Sitka, the guy that goes, hold hands, lovebirds, and was almost the seventh Stooge, does he have a little section? Of course he does! Oh my god, there's a wall of Shemp where you can see lobby cards, and they have... 
Shemp's framed 1945 tax return. Yeah, it's not just a wall of Shemp. It's a hallway of Shemp that we almost missed because it's off to the corner uh, beside the like 80 seat theater that they have showing nonstop Stooges shorts. There's a stunning Joe Besser display. Okay, Joe Besser, the guy who was a Stooge for two years. They have his trunk that he carried around in vaudeville. They have a huge banner that says, introducing our guest, Joe Besser, that came from one of his vaudeville appearances. They have like, I don't know, whatever you want moe's driver's license uh curly joe's uh fucking i I can't remember what curly joe stuff they had but they had a lot they had the prop the little uh ship prop from the three stooges in orbit which as we'll get to later is a very important prop from that movie and this just tip of the iceberg because they had every every stooge product every stooge comic book every stooge movie poster autographs from every stooge autographs from every supporting player i I, i'm i'm emotional talking about the stoogeum and i want to say hats off to the organizers of the stoogeum because it was a genuine delight to walk through it and read the information cards and i would call will over and be like will will look at this look at this shemp signs both his names on this driver's license form yeah it says samuel horowitz bracket Shemp Howard bracket. <laughs> it was uh, such a delight. We were there for two hours and then we had to go. I could have spent the whole day there, honestly, just just studying every little piece of Stooge memorabilia, reading the letters from Mo that you can see, studying the photos of Curly Joe Dorita in his dotage. We were looking at a small ceramic cat and there was a whole explanation of how Mo sent this to someone. It was broken and rebuilt, squinting at his cursive handwriting, trying to figure out what exactly was written. Oh yeah, Mo got into ceramics late in life. He, he liked to make ceramics. This is an example of the bit of information that you can learn at the Stooge And just looking at all the posters too, there's a section where they're all organized chronologically and you can like flip through original theatrical one sheets ah just heaven for me and will so everybody immediately i don't care what it costs i don't care quit your job if you have to go to the studio (laughs) that was actually the last thing that we did because firstly we got in the car and will drove the entire way anywhere that we went to will drove so Give him an award for that as I sat beside him, trying not to fall asleep. So, yes, the Schlockorama 6 was the program at the Mahoning Drive-In from July 29th to the 31st. And when Justin first pitched this to me a couple months ago... He showed me the schedule, and I did a double take. I, I actually couldn't believe it, that there were so many things that I loved, and so many things that I would never expect to be playing on 35mm or at a drive-in in the year of our Lord 2022. So we'll go over this night by night, and there are things that I think we'll have more things to say than others. Some of them for particular reasons. Some of them because I fell asleep during at least one of them. Because he was driving for 10 hours. That's why I did that setup there, Will. Uh, so Friday july 29th uh so on on each of the first two nights it was quadruple bills and uh, i had to make the decision on each night to sleep during one of the movies now quadruple bills that's a lot like especially that the movies start at 9 p.m because they have to start when it gets dark at the drive-in and can we just describe the drive-in a little bit for people maybe they've never been to one especially this particular one because i think this one is laid out great it's a one screen drive-in the screen is massive they have a little snack bar at the back where they have like records you can go through vhs you can buy a t-shirt you can get all sorts of snacks there's outhouses there's camping in the back as well but it also felt like a very open and you can walk around you can even go and sit your chair closer to the screen if you want because there's a big open area and you won't be getting in anybody's way it is essentially like the ultimate drive-in experience just a very pleasant atmosphere i gotta say 
I've been to the drive-in a number of times in my life, and I've never enjoyed it as much as this. Oftentimes, when you go to the the remaining drive-ins right now, they don't look as good. And I think it's because with digital projection now and digital filming, like the movies actually were not meant to be projected outdoors. They don't look as good. Like I saw one of the Fast and Furious movies a year or two ago at a drive-in and most of it you couldn't actually see because it was dark. Yeah, I think it also has to do when you're projecting on that big a screen from such a distance, the bulbs really are important and some of the drive-ins, like the ones that you, I saw Fast and Furious at the same place you did, I couldn't even make out what was going on because it was so dark. No problems here though, that it was nice and crystal clear and incredibly bright. So the quadruple bill on the first night July 29th, the theme was weird aliens. And we start with the Quatermass Experiment, or as we saw it under its American release title, The Creeping Unknown from 1955. This is an early Hammer horror movie. And this was one that I thought I had seen, but I was thinking of Quatermass in the Pit which is a color one that comes out later. This one is directed by Val Guest, a really um, solid B-movie, 50s-era science fiction guy. He did uh, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which I very much enjoy. And this one, very low-key, perfect starter for this kind of thing, because it's a real mood piece. There's a monster at the end, but it mostly shows up and hangs out in some rafters. (laughs) But when you're sitting, you're getting acclimated to the drive-in, this was just a delight to see play out on the big screen. Well, one of the novelties of it is uh, the main character of Quatermass was played by Brian Donlevy, who is a uh, an American actor, kind of a gruff actor. Not particularly likable, I gotta say. I think that Nigel Keane, the writer of the, I'm going to say it different every time, uh, Quatermass series, like, and the fans, they did not like him in this portrayal because the character is very specifically a British duck-up guy as he had been portrayed in the early TV series and as he would be portrayed after this movie. But I kind of like the portrayal of the character in this one just because he is outside of everything else going on. He has a completely different attitude to what's going on, which gives you kind of a central point that you can focus on. I agree with you that this was a good starter movie because the atmosphere was exactly the atmosphere I was looking for after, you know, 10 hours on the road. Very low-key, kind of slow, but it had this powerful nocturnal atmosphere. It's a very black and white film, very heavy shadows. I felt kind of like I was drifting off into sleep. There's something, I mean, it's not consciously a dreamlike movie, but there's something, I don't know, there was was some lullaby quality to the vibe of the movie. Sonambulist quality to the film. Yeah, which, I mean, I think enhanced the atmosphere of what we were seeing, uh, which... I mean, I'm sure it was a movie that the gorehounds in the audience didn't much care for because there there is a monster in the film, a sort of, uh, well, how would you describe kind it? Kind of blobby thing. Well, for most of the film, it's a very gaunt man running around attacking people. And they go, ah! And he looks kind of like a deflated Klaus Kinski. Exactly. And then at the end, when the monster finally shows up, it's just kind of a almost a Lovecraftian blob of pustules. But you only ever see it like high up hanging from some rafters and it gets taken care of right then and now there. I'm heartbroken to tell you that the second movie on the double bill I did have to sleep through the second half of because I was exhausted all the more heartbroken because it's directed by uh, a favorite of the podcast a great man the wildly prolific Edward L. Kahn Edward L. Kahn was a guy that started very early in Hollywood he started as an editor he became a filmmaker on you know some studio pictures he did Law and Order with 
with Walter Houston. And then people aren't quite sure what happened, but he had a fall from grace, stopped directing for a few years. Then when he came back, he was the go-to guy for exploitation films. He did so many AIP movies. He did tons of science fiction films like Invisible Invaders. And the one that played at the drive-in is probably his most famous one, only because of his association with a future film. It was It, The Terror from Beyond Space. And it's a movie that gets talked about in the context of being the inspiration for Ridley Scott's Alien. And is it actually? Is that is that has that ever been confirmed? Uh, I mean, I'm sure Dan O'Bannon probably saw the movie and his pal when they wrote the script. It's an alien on a spaceship. Uh, the difference between it and Alien are that once it gets kicked off in uh, the Edward L. Kahn version, it just never stops. Like they're aware of the alien and it's so powerful, they keep they get trapped and they keep getting pushed back further and further as the alien tries to grab them. Now, the alien is also a favorite of the podcast because it's portrayed by Ray Crash Corrigan, the man that was in many a gorilla suit. And the story about this alien is that famously, Ray, I don't remember the exact story, but the mask didn't fit him. So his chin sticks out of it and they built a little mouth under it to make it look like his chin was the alien's tongue coming out. So I love that. And this is a great movie. It's in the family of 50 Science Fiction movie where like young people didn't exist. Or if they were like around 30, that means they look like they're like in their 60s. And it's nonstop. Once the alien attacks, they're like, this alien is unstoppable. We're trying to figure out a way to deal with it. There's a really fun, like, we're out in space, moving in slow motion, like, zero budget 2001 style special effects sequence. Edward L. Kahn, I mean, the word that you would use to describe him is probably resourceful. Yeah, efficient. Yeah, he's not an Ed Wood type. Sorry, no disrespect to the great Mr. Ed Wood, but Edward L. Kahn is a good director. He knows how to tell a story. He knows how to pace a story. I think, you know, his, his compositions all the technical stuff is quite strong given his limited resources. And I think that what fascinates me about him is that kind of slim down, straight to the point filmmaking that he gets to in his best movies. And what also fascinates me is he had a Jess Franco-like final few years of his life where he was making like 10 to 15 films in and around the house that he bought, just pumping them out. Westerns, science fiction films, uh, crime films. The Flesh and the Spur is one of those famous like public domain films that you always see floating around. But this is a great movie. Glad to see it on the big screen. I was sad that Will couldn't watch it with me, but I understood because he was able to join me for the next two movies. Well, because the next two movies were very important for me to see. And I, I will catch up with the second half of It, The Terror from Beyond Space. I promise. Uh, the third movie was one of the most important for me in this whole weekend. Longtime listeners to the podcast will know that we are fans of Edgar G. Ulmer, the poet of Poverty Row, the man who apprenticed under F.W. Murnau in the great flowering of German Expressionism, who came to Hollywood, directed The Black Cat, and then was blacklisted from the studios and had to spend the rest of his career toiling away on Poverty Row, trying to insert his German expressionist sensibility into some of the most unpromising B-movies that Hollywood had to offer. And this is just such a film. 1951's The Man from Planet X. And The Man from Planet X is well-liked in Edgar G. Ulmer circles, but it's also one that you have to be aware isn't very eventful and can be looked down upon for that. It has a very iconic looking monster. It is soaked in fog. And that's pretty much it when you talk about the film. Well, the story story is that there's this arrival of a spacecraft in the Scottish Moors. Is it friend or foe? Well, we'll find out. 
I won't pretend this movie doesn't have its slow stretches, but what really separates this movie is its atmosphere. In Edgar G. Elmer's great film Detour, one of the iconic scenes is uh, one of the opening scenes in New York City. Obviously, it was filmed in Los Angeles. He didn't have the resources to go and film in New York, so what he did was just put a lot of fog in a studio and put some street lamps and some street signs as if to create a New York of memory. And that's kind of the strategy that he employs throughout Man from Planet X. The fog and the lighting and the Scottish Moors, where of course he didn't film, is very evocative. It's sort of the idea of the Scottish Moors. And you have to see a lot of 50 science fiction movies, I think, to really understand his achievement with this movie. This movie was shot in, you know, a week, 10 days, and it is consistently beautiful and atmosphere every frame is just dripping with atmosphere which i think was only elevated by being able to watch it at the drive-in during a period i should point out it was raining outside but thankfully we were able to get under a tent that had been set up so we didn't have to watch it you know through a windshield and watching it within that environment ah what a great experience it was just that kind of muggy rainy feel as he was watching these images on screen that are not like bombastic or anything so there's not that much taken away from hearing the sound of rain pitter and patter around you i really do think we had the ideal screening of the man from planet x well the only thing missing was fog but then the last movie of the first night i mean this is i'm so glad i was able to stay up for this one because this movie is well, okay, it's 1965's Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. Another movie that I thought maybe I had seen in some form, because I looked at the poster art and went, eh, that looks recognizable. But as it started up, I went, nope, this is not something I've seen before, and I'm all the happier for it. It involves, let me see if I can summarize the plot. Uh, NASA, or a NASA-like organization, is about to launch a mission. They have a spaceman, they, they have the astronaut, you know, do his press conference, and halfway through the press conference he starts glitching okay so this was the moment that me and will are like oh we are in okay because what happens is the uh, spaceman is talking he smiles and there's a freeze frame of his face and it holds it holds it cuts back to some reporters he's talking to cuts back to him it zooms in on this like he is not frozen in terms of like oh the actor stops moving he's frozen as in they took a still frame of the actor and it's just up on screen and that is just the cherry on top of a beautiful sequence where it's this nasa press conference that seems to be taking place in a closet it's just a tiny room with three journalists like the editing is horrific every shot lasts a beat too long and begins a beat too early the framing is always off oftentimes people's chins are cut off so you just see like the full head and then like the dead space above their head i mean the real star of this movie is stock footage because oh man is there a lot of it in here oh so much well so there are also aliens in the movie and the aliens are kind of of the plan nine from outer space school of ambiguously gay space aliens in a <laughs> in a really cheap set the the main space alien who again is exactly like john breckenridge in in plan nine uh he also has like nosferatu ears and a fake bald head like he's got a bald cap on really camping it up at one point you whispered to me this is just one degree away from a kuchar brothers movie yes <laughs> but a lot of the movie is following around this this spaceman who you know he his flight has been a failure he's crash landed and they've manufactured him so he's he's frankenstein yeah he's an android it's well it was unclear to me if he was an android or if he was somehow a reanimated person which would make sense if it's a frankenstein movie but i I guess he was an android yeah i think they talk about him as an android even though they 
directly say we've created some kind of Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, yeah. And the spaceman, once he lands, he gets toxic Avenger face, so half of his face is all melted, and all he does is wander around going, and killing anyone that he meets, which just hilarious. What a delight that is. Well, this movie is 79 minutes long, and generously, it has 20 minutes of story. 40 minutes of driving, set to like pop songs, which every time it happened, me and Will were dying of laughter. Oh god, the early scene where they're loading him up for for his flight, all this stock footage of presumably actual NASA missions, it's scored to folk rock, just kind of hippie-ish music, baffling the juxtaposition. Now, I understand that a lot of the people who made this movie, I mean, the people who made this movie had no illusions. At best, it was a joke, and at worst, it was like, let's get some quick money. And it was marketed very much as a serious science fiction movie because, uh, haha, we got your money. Haha, I can't uh, can't get a refund after you've got your ticket. The, the makers basically knew that it was ridiculous. And uh, now we do too. And I, I just I just enjoyed it very much. Like whether or not it was intentionally bad, you don't see images like these. You don't see juxtapositions like these very often. And it has a gorilla monster in a suit called Moe. Bring on Moe! Which I'm looking at the IMDb credits and Bruce Glover is credited, father of Crispin Glover, as the man in the monster suit. Interesting. I assumed it was Ray Crash Corrigan or someone, huh? Nope. Uh, They didn't have the budget for Crash for this movie, (laughs) considering it was a bunch of filmmakers that never did anything ever again. I do think it was enhanced by watching it at 3 and 4 a.m. just in, in the outdoors, like just being trapped with this movie. I would recommend this movie to anyone, but it's good to watch it in an environment like that. I think if you were watching it at home, you would be really tempted to bail at times. Or watch it with a group of friends, not in a party atmosphere. You give it your full attention, but that way you can have a bunch of laughs and, you know, high five in as you watch somebody on a moped just continually drive. You can't believe they keep cutting to different angles. Oh my God. So night two, what did it start off with will which was the sea monster night well this was one of the other ones that really got me out one of my favorite movies of all time godzilla 1985 we've talked about this movie in great detail on a rival podcast uh, but we're going to talk about it here as well because i can never get enough of talking about godzilla 1985 what's the gist of godzilla 1985 well godzilla 1985 was basically toho going back and we're going to reboot Godzilla for a new generation. Now, we ran it into the ground and ended it with Terror of Mechagodzilla. It's been a long time, but this is the 80s. We can kind of recontextualize Godzilla, not have him fight monsters anymore. Bring him back to his original intentions with updated special effects. But what was really special about the screening me and Will saw is that we watched a 35mm print of the American version released by New World, not currently run at that time by Roger Corman, he had sold it, and with new footage of Raymond Burr, who had originally appeared in the first one. So the first Godzilla movie from 1954, an American distributor bought it, cut 40 minutes of footage, and added 20 minutes of footage starring the American actor Raymond Burr as a reporter in Japan watching this. And of course, it's it's bad, folks. It's it's ridiculous to have this extra footage just jerry-rigged onto the movie. But then 30 years later, when New World Pictures buys the movie, they say, hey, let's get Raymond Burr again, and let's do the exact same thing, where we add 
uh, 10 minutes because Raymond Burr only gave them one day to reprise his role. Eight hours, I believe. The Raymond Burr scenes in this movie are so ridiculous. Uh, it's just this American control room at the Pentagon where, you know, the generals are are watching what's happening with Godzilla. And they're saying, we need we need an expert in here. We need somebody who knows what they're dealing with. Let's get the, the white guy who saw Godzilla attack in 1954. And because they're dealing with a fully completed movie... Raymond Burr can only do so much to impact the plot of the movie. So he's just there saying, no, conventional weaponry of any kind will only confuse and anger Godzilla. There's got to be a better way. You know, just him being a real downer and contributing nothing of note to the plot. But what we should talk about that we didn't cover on the Rival podcast is Godzilla looks so good in this movie. Now, I've been a little bit hard on Godzilla 1985. I think when we did our Godzilla episode, I said I liked it, but it had its faults. Watching this American version that does reshuffle a bunch of scenes, trim stuff down, I thought it was just an amazing experience. Loved every second of it. When Godzilla shows up on screen, finally, you get that big push-up across his body. It's almost full Godzilla all the way through until the end. And I really love this Godzilla design, because they're not quite there yet, where they made Godzilla, like, cat-eyed, because they want to make him look more mean. He's still got the big golf ball eyes that he had in the original, you know, uh, 70s version. But he's mean in this movie, though. Like, he is knocking over buildings, pu- pulling a King Kong and taking a train and just tossing it to the side, burning up everything that he sees. And he's also doing it at night. And you can see how the special effects have evolved and they're finding different ways to show this kind of stuff in ways that still hold up watching it on the big drive-in screen, like as we did last weekend. Godzilla 85 has always been one of my favorite Godzilla movies. Not not necessarily one of the best, but just one of my favorites because it feels like no other Godzilla movie. It has It just has a different atmosphere visually it looks different the cityscape the tokyo in the movie looks different the atmosphere the lighting this is also a movie with a very nocturnal atmosphere with a very like fiery red color scheme as you pointed out it feels like a disaster movie more than the other ones it's less juvenile than most of them while still having a sense of humor i mean it does feature a character that looks exactly like someone from fantasy mission force doing comedic shtick oh the wacky homeless man at the end and then i don't know when you when you add raymond burr doing his ridiculous uh uh monologue looking like orson wells doing his big monologues as someone drinks dr pepper beside him because they got sponsorship for dr pepper for the american reshoots Uh, it was just so much fun when it ended i was like play it again play it again now 1957's the monster that challenged the world uh this is one i don't have a lot to say about oh i love this movie so good you make the case for it i found it like a pretty bog standard 50s monster movie i also think you were a little bit sleepy while it was playing maybe maybe a little bit uh i love how the monster looks in this movie i think that the way they approach the monster attacks the way that there's like a real sense of death and that every death it kind of like weighs heavily on all the characters i love the procedural kind of um, way that it plays out how everyone's involved they know the monsters exist and they're just trying to figure out a way to deal with them it's also got a lot of stuff that like steven spielberg clearly saw and utilized in jaws there's like a monster attack that's straight out of jaws it's the exact same sequence from the opening of the movie and yeah the monster is cool it's gross what it does is it grabs people and it sucks out all their life fluids and there's even a shot of a guy underwater going oh as like 
like his um, prosthetic body just gets crushed. So all of that stuff that I love and the end sequence, it's okay where it's just basically they figure out how to like blow up the monster. And then it ends with a sequence right out of aliens of the monster threatening a young woman and her daughter as it's like crashing through the lab and trying to kill everybody. I think it's one of the best 50s monster movies out there. You pointed out that there's something about watching a movie like this in a drive-in setting, like Movies like this were made for the drive-in because if you watch them home alone, oftentimes they're a little boring. There are a lot of scenes of gray people in gray rooms having gray conversations. But there's something about the outdoor drive-in setting that fills in the atmosphere, you know? Well, there was a sequence where it's like a guy that's on duty, like guarding a river, and he hears something and he goes out. And, it, you know, when you're sitting at the drive-in, you just feel the void filled in with like crickets, just the sound of the forest. There is like a heaviness to it that worked very well for that sequence. And you wouldn't usually get that because it would just be an empty void if you were just watching it at home, which is why even this time it just like hit me even harder than it did when I watched it, you know, on a probably a Blu-ray with tons of special features. Now, this next movie, I did have to just, I just declared defeat and slept right through it. It was one in the morning, folks. I had to, had to get some sleep so that I could watch the fourth one. I said like, Will, I haven't seen this movie. I know it's not going to be good. Go sleep. You will not miss anything. Well, there are people who love this movie and many movies like it. It's 1955's It Came From Beneath the Sea, which is notable for containing special effects by the great stop motion artist Ray Harryhausen. And we did a whole episode a little while back on one of those Ray Harryhausen effects movies. And we talked about the positive and negative, like... When monsters are on screen, it's death. <laughs> like, when are the monsters coming back? Come on, guys, what's going on? The problem with this one is that the monster's just not that interesting. We talk a lot about personalities that Harryhausen and his team would bring to the monster animation. But here, we got nothing. The monster, which is a big... It's not an octopus because it doesn't have enough legs. It just has no personality. It just kind of like wraps its tentacles around things, knocks things over. I'm sure if I saw it as a kid on a Sunday you know, afternoon, I would have enjoyed it. Maybe I would have been drawing these kind of monsters in my books. But just sitting there at one in the morning, I was like, oh my god, this is bad. Even when the monster shows up, it's not that exciting. Well, something that I love about the drive-in structure is that the last movie on the quadruple bill is always what you'd call the chaser. And back in the day, the drive-in owners used to call it the chaser because it was supposed to chase people out because it was so bad and then the staff would be able to go home early well this one i wanted to see though i was determined to stay up all the way for it because as justin pointed out this is practically a lost movie it was never commercially released on vhs or dvd you can find i think a taped off tv rip of it online but it's a very hard movie to find and the print that we watched was heavily water damaged as well it was on the the cusp of just like ripping and burning <laughs> in the projector which it never did so we could enjoy it without any breaks this was our pretty much our only chance to see it in such a such a good form mm -hmm. uh, you know not all lost movies are yeah, good so this movie's called port sinister we watched it under the title beast of paradise Paradise Isle. It's from 1953. It's a B movie. There's nothing particularly remarkable about it. Uh, it involves a treasure hunt on a deserted island. There are uh, gangsters. There are scientists. They're all uh, working at cross purposes. There's a woman. And they're going to the island to try to find the treasure. Okay, so we were promised a giant crab in this movie. And as the movie's playing, I feel my stomach start to drop. I'm like, oh no. This is not going to be like a bird-eye Gordon close-up of a real crab being like, at the person, is it? Is it? 
I want I want a prosthetic crab. No real crab. No, folks. We got we got a camera up close to a giant to an actual crab. Boo. A real crab. I, I think it was dead because it looked like it was being like puppeted in some of the shots where it was co- composited in. Just like the giant Gila monster, you'd see this close up shot of a crab and then it would cut to, you know, the actor or the actress going, ah. But by the end of the movie, though. They were on a big set filled with smoke and traps. Me and Will were enjoying that. The last 10 minutes are pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's this big set that looks like the Batcave at the Science Center. There's some smoke and there are some little patches of fire, some very safely contained patches of fire. There's a bit where the earth opens up under a guy and he falls in it and it looks like it's as if the earth was a giant jigsaw puzzle. They just disconnected it. Very cheap looking, very tactile, pretty fun, although that may just be me eating crumbs because i'm starving <laughs> yeah you're like i'm up this late i gotta find something you know good to enjoy about this would not recommend to anyone there's many more movies you can watch before this one but the novelty of seeing it that's what gets us out to things like the drive-in okay the grand finale so i want to say that when we arrived at the drive-in one of the volunteers dave wright was so nice he's an icc listener he was hey guys i'm a big fan you know uh, you can sit up at the front you know go to the snack bar he even brought us to the back to, like look at the projectors and stuff like that so thank you so much dave and what's even more important is that dave said hey on sunday you guys should go to the colonial theater they're playing king kong so me and will are like oh well we got to get another movie and i guess during this movie packed weekend that's right the colonial theater in phoenixville is a beautiful movie palace and what's notable about it apart from being a beautiful theater in a beautiful town, is that it's where they shot the end of the blob. Every year they have blob fest. If you go to the very back of the theater in the balcony, there's a little plaque next to the projection booth that, you know, talks about the blob. And they have a Wurlitzer organ, one of the few theaters to have one. And it was tons of fun. We watched King Kong. Don't need to talk about King Kong that much. Other than when it ended, I was just frustrated thinking like, why do monster movie makers just not look at King Kong? Like it did it perfectly. All you have to do is that. Like even like 10% of that would be better than most of the monster movies that have come out since then. Oh, I was walking on a cloud. But listen, you know about King Kong. We went back to the drive-in Sunday, July 31st for Super Stooges Sunday. That's right. We're coming full circle because this is the thing that truly clinched the trip for me. A double bill of 1959's Have Rocket Will Travel and 1962's The Three Stooges in Orbit. Now, people know we're big Three Stooges fans. What you may not know is that when the Stooges got popular again, thanks to TV airings of their shorts, they were in a bit of a dilemma. They wanted to make more stuff, in this case, feature films, but one of their members had passed away. Well, actually, two of their members had passed away, Shemp and Curly. So what do you do? How can you make feature films with only two Stooges? Well, you get a perfect, you would never know, it's not him, double of Curly. And you call him Curly Joe Dorita. That's right. The Stooges, Mo and Larry, they had the opportunity to make feature films. They had the opportunity to go on the road and do personal appearances. This would become a very lucrative time for them in the late 50s and early 60s because there was a whole new generation of boomer children watching their old shorts on TV who wanted to see the Stooges. Unfortunately, Curly was dead. Shemp was dead. Joe Besser did not want to join the act anymore. (laughs) No one wanted to see Joe Besser either. Joe Dorita was a vaudevillian, a sort of journeyman vaudevillian who had been around for a long time. No particular comic personality of his own. And they said, hey, would you like to be the third stooge? Can you just shave your head a little bit? And what if we called you Curly Joe? 
And if you watch Curly and then you watch Curly Joe. I mean, you call him the tofu Curly. <laughs> yeah, but that's an insult to tofu because tofu can actually <laughs> tofu can take on the flavor. Has nutritional value. Yeah, it can take on the fl- if you put sauce on tofu, you can like it has flavor. Nothing penetrates Curly Joe. He is so unfunny. He's one of the least funny people ever. But he was fat and he was bald, and presumably he was able to keep up with the rigors of touring. And so uh yeah, I was so compelled by watching Curly Joe on the big screen. <laughs> And so Have Rocket Will Travel, their first, you know, return to movie making is, I thought it was fine. There were a lot of bits in it. Um, Curly Joe is not Curly, even though they try to dub a like, in a wide shot of him coming down when he's on a ladder. Mo and Larry are pretty old at this point. Curly Joe is pretty old, too. I mean, they're in their mid to late 60s, I think. They look older, if possible. So it doesn't quite have the snappy pace of a of an earlier Three Stooges short. Like, you're watching elderly men with their pants up very high and huge asses, you know, <laughs> doing shtick. But Have Rocket Will Travel, though. They go to space. They fight a spider that shoots lasers. They get shrunk down. They get robot doubles. They meet a talking unicorn. And that's only in the second act. In the third act, they're like, well, we don't have a feature film yet. So how about they go to a party? When they get back to Earth, you can definitely feel the movie going, okay, how are we going to run out the clock here? Yeah, get them at a fancy high society party. Let's let's get some cakes in here. Let's uh, get them do like at that point, the movie is really running on fumes. Uh, did I enjoy? I mean, okay, you say this movie is okay. By any objective standards, it's not okay. I was laughing throughout it. Had a big smile on my face, which I can't say about the next movie we're going to talk about. Well, actually, the Stooges for me are a bit like Jerry Lewis, where if when they're funny, they're great. When they're not funny, they're even better. <laughs> I laughed. What can I say? But I laughed a lot at just the sight of these old men doing this stuff. Like, it's borderline anti-comedy at times, but... What can I say? I was enjoying myself. But I also have to say that the second movie we watched, The Three Stooges in Orbit, I, we were pretty like grim-faced throughout because if you didn't laugh at the kind of like slow shtick of the previous picture, this one had no shtick. We were like, we're dying here. Give us anything. The Three Stooges in Orbit is a truly awful movie. Let me see. It has a real dog's breakfast of a script where it starts with their landlady kicks them out because they're cooking in the apartment. The landlady is played by Marjorie Eaton from The Atomic Brain, also known as Monstrosity. That's a, a little fact for you atomic brain heads out there. And so you try to grasp what the plot of this movie is, which is... They are the three stooges in this world. (laughs) So, like, they have a TV show called The Three Stooges where they introduce a cartoon that was originally part of the Three Stooges scrapbook, which was a pilot that never went to series. And which we also saw, by the way, in between the movies, they showed the unsold TV pilot, The Three Stooges scrapbook. Not good, I would say. Not good. Bad, bad. Bad, bad, bad. And they are told that they need to find something fresh, which is so funny, someone saying that in a Three Stooges movie, or they will be canceled, which leads them to rooming in a gothic castle run by a scientist played by Emil Sitka. Well, at this point, you're at, you're at the gothic castle, and 
there's some Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein shtick of Curly Joe being scared because there's a monster in the closet or that kind of thing. And Mo being like, ah, what's the matter? There's no monster, you knucklehead, that kind of thing. And at this point, you're thinking, wait, this movie's called The Three Stooges in Orbit. When are we going to get space stuff? When are they going to space? Well, there are aliens in the movie. They are they are haunting the manor. The mad scientist played by Emil Sitka is aware of them and everyone thinks he's crazy. Nevertheless, I I don't think they really become important to the plot until the last act. There's a lot of just shtick around the manor. Yeah, so Emil Sitka like invented a new ship that can go on water, fly in the air. He has a little model version that seemingly goes up Curly Joe's butt in the shower, which brought us great uh, gales of laughter and brought an even bigger smile on our face when we saw that little ship at the Stoogeum. We're like, oh my God. Do you think they had to clean it off before they put it on display? From, from being in Curly Joe's ass? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, okay, the scene of Curly Joe in the shower, I just want to pause on that for a sec because, like, Obviously, we don't see anything. We don't see Curly Joe's dick and butt. <laughs> the stooge, the other people in the scene would have. Okay, they would have seen Curly Joe naked. He was hung like John Holmes. <laughs> That's common knowledge, Will. So, in the diegesis of the film, they would have seen it too. So, I mean, that colors everything that we see after that. If you ask me, like they do go in orbit at the end in this Emil Sitka ship. It's very unfunny. It does have a scene where the aliens are like, "The three stooges got a gun," which didn't make me laugh. How about the scene where there are a bunch of pies on a windowsill? They're in this submarine slash helicopter that they've built. They fly it right next to this port that has all the pies cooling and the blades of the helicopter shoot the pies so that they all hit the soldiers. I mean, that's good stuff. (laughs) It's so reverse engineered that I really did kind of laugh at it. But there's a lot of stuff that's not funny in this movie. Oh, there's a lot of dead spot. Like you see the aliens communicating with their leaders and it's subtitled. There's no jokes and it goes on forever. So deeply unfunny. But speaking of things that are unfunny, but... I can't remember the <laughs> laughing that hard after the movie, just thinking of me and Will. We had like tears streaming down our face. We could not breathe. <laughs> and I don't think listeners will find it as funny as we're going to explain it. I think it. I can explain it. Okay. And I'm laughing just remembering it. So remember, the subplot of this movie is that the Three Stooges in the movie have a TV show (laughs) that they host on TV where they introduce a cartoon of themselves. So in this world, the Three Stooges are the famous Three Stooges. And that never really comes up elsewhere in the plot. But there's a businessman who's going to shut down their show unless they can come up with a better kind of cartoon, a, a really cool, innovative cartoon. Now, the mad scientist has come up with this new invention called rotoscoping, which if you've seen the ralph bakshi animated movies like the hobbit you're familiar with it it's like when they when they film someone moving and then they put a sort of animated filter over it so the stooges get all dressed up and they put the white makeup on so that they can be rotoscoped and turned into cartoons and they start dancing in front of the camera and larry's like hey here's a cool new dance move this is what all the kids are doing but their moves are like Imagine the most low energy, like one of them is just kind of like driving the foot in the ground and just like moving a little bit to the left and the right. And that's it. They're doing the twist, but the slowest, most geriatric version of the twist. And also it's the Three Stooges doing it. The old Three Stooges, the Curly Joe Three Stooges dancing in front of a camera. And then this is later presented to the executive of this like five second animated bit of them dancing. And he loves it. He cannot get enough of it. (laughs) This is all we see. 
And like me and Will just kept laughing at the idea of kids just watching these three stooges just dancing for five seconds. <laughs> and that's all it is. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm laughing at it now. Imagine you love the three stooges. You watch the three stooges on TV every day. You love it when they hit each other, when they fall over, when they uh, when they drive nails into their skulls, all the wacky slapstick. And then imagine the three stooges say, we have a new thing that we're going to do. We're going to dance. And they just dance. They monotonously dance on but TV. Are we the fools? Because we're watching it. They've tricked us. The innovative thing is what we're watching. And this executive is watching three elderly vaudevillians dance, and he's saying, I love this. This is fantastic. This is revolutionary. I could not stop laughing at this. This was so funny. And it implies that he's been watching it for like 25 minutes at one point, <laughs> because you see him watching it. You cut back to the three stooges doing shtick, and then it cuts back to him still watching the same dance loop. <laughs> again, again. <laughs> Let me see Curly Joe dance more. <laughs> I need to uh, clip it and put it on Twitter and be like, this is the future of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> real heads will know it's so funny oh my god if folks watch the three stooges in orbit it is 98 percent a terrible film and then two percent a deeply fascinating movie and this is the two percent so that was it for our weekend at the drive-in drove back no injuries we made it home safe and sound and it was just a delight the whole way through just big smiles on our faces i think until we got home yes we were we were drowning in cinema at the end of it and uh, it was just great to see so many flavors <laughs> no more no more curly joe so many flavors that cinema had to offer and and i'll just end by noting that we did in fact make a long drive to patterson new jersey to look at the lou costello statue in lou costello memorial park that's right which was a hilariously self-indulgent thing to do you can find photos of me and will standing by that statue and we've done the honorable thing and next thing we'll find that abbott uh, statue out there right it exists well yeah presumably there's an abbott statue if not i'll build one and put it on the front lawn so thank you very much to all the people that organized that festival like um the mahoning as well as exhumed films who had all those rare prints who kept a print of the three stooges film and allowed an audience to see it and we should say that it was a pretty light audience that came to see the movies and <laughs> no kidding the cars were just like swarming out as the movies played just the three stooges one there were a lot of people for godzilla 85 but that's uh, so funny to me, and I'm so happy I could be there for that event, because it will never happen again. So, Justin, do we have any letters? Uh, you know, this week, we're going a little long. No letters this week. We'll get to letters back next week. Next week on the podcast. Wait, let's give a little context of how we got to this subject, which is, on our drive, I, uh, you know, got some commentary tracks for us to listen to, and we listened to, like, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but quickly, it turned into us just listening to every commentary track recorded by Kevin Smith. Now, Kevin Smith is one of the most mentioned directors on this podcast. What can I say? We are two uh, white males of, uh, I think, 33 and 34 years of age, and uh, we were of the right generation for Kevin Smith. Like everyone our age, I think... We've had our ups and downs with Mr. Kevin Smith. We've uh, disavowed him at times, but yet we keep coming back to him. Now, we are going to do, at long last, an official Kevin Smith episode. However, it will not be discussing Kevin Smith's movies. Instead, we will be discussing the Kevin Smith Extended Universe. Because Kevin Smith's good guy, when he hit it big and people were interested in his work, he brought his friends along with him. So a lot of his pals got to make movies. Vincent Pereira made A Better Place. Malcolm Ingram made Drawing Flies. Brian Johnson made Vulgar. 
There's so many movies out there. And Jeff Anderson, what was the one that he directed? Randall himself? I believe it was called Now You Know. So we'll talk about those and just talk about Kevin Smith was in the context of the extended universe. These filmmakers who went out there, gave it their all because their pal provided the opportunity. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm very excited to check these movies out, which me and Will, we watched most of them during our Kevin Smith obsession, but probably don't get watched very often these days. Oh, you should check out uh, Jason Muse's recent director debut madness in the method because because that one comes from a later era of kevin mm-hmm, smith mm-hmm. so it's not all from that pure like right when he was knocking him out so until next week my name's justin Nicole. i'm will sloan thanks for listening we would just like to thank some of our new patron subscribers who include david watkins marcus rose maria l scorch evan w michael byron aaron pickadash chris colin bucky charlie bowden luke Horlbeck, Alex Bernstein, Chris Barry Goss, Michael Sterrett, Matt, Ken Nichols, Daniel Hapson, Don Swordsma, Jeremy Hawkins, and Juan Pablo Meza Artman. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. Well, Justin, are you excited for Batgirl? Oh, yeah, man. Michael Keaton's going to be back up on the big screen. You're going to get Brendan Fraser playing Firefly, J.K. Simmons getting to be uh, Gordon once again. This week came the shocking news that Warner Brothers is apparently just not going to release. It's going to bury an entire superhero movie that they've spent $90 million on, the new film Batgirl. As a tax write-off. They have decided that it will be more in their interest because this movie Batgirl was originally announced as HBO Max content. And it looks like they are uh, phasing out HBO Max or at least going in a very different direction with HBO Max. There's a new regime at Warner Brothers who have disavowed this earlier strategy of pumping a lot of money into creating original content for streaming so they're not doing that anymore but also this new batgirl movie is apparently it's not of the sufficient scope or scale to be a theatrical release and so they're just gonna apparently not release it i don't think it's ever happened on something this big and that's made the news like i'm sure it happens like it would happen a lot during like the tax shelter era that it was more worthwhile that they shelved the movie than it was to give it a release but for a film that's part of like the superhero wave that is going on to just shelve it that is bananas a film with a-list talent like it's directed by uh the people who did bad boys three and miss marvel again it's got high profile actors including for god's sake michael keaton back in the role of batman i mean it's it's kind of unfathomable and i keep seeing this news and i think this can't actually be can it like did you hear that they're also pulling a bunch of like hbo max streaming movies to kind of use them as write-offs as well i saw an article about that recently and i saw somebody post i mean i'm sorry i can't remember who it was but i saw somebody post that this is almost like the logical extension of this business model that's been building over the last few years of spending a lot of money on streaming content that does not actually make money directly you know for these streaming services where the whole point is that you keep getting subscribers and you can keep losing and losing and losing money year after year after year but as long as you have the appearance of growth people will keep investing in it and the minute these streamers start to actually lose the subscriber base the whole house of cards comes tumbling down and that's what's happening now I mean, it's also related to the fact that Warner Brothers merged with Discovery and the Discovery people who are now in charge are like, we don't care about movies. Non-scripted content, it's so much easier. It like costs so much less. We're just going to focus in on that. Get rid of these million dollar movies and things like that. I still find it difficult to believe. I mean, I guess they can do what they want with what they own, but I find it difficult to believe that this will actually happen because 
again, there's a level talent involved with this movie. Surely a lot of them, you know, will be very upset and will cause a big ruckus. Surely a lot of people just in the industry. I mean, imagine if you're a filmmaker, imagine if you are a, a high powered producer to see a studio do this with an almost completed movie that thousands of people have worked so hard on a movie that like an A-level cast is not going to be happy when a movie that they've spent four months making just disappears and is thrown into the vault. Remember all the legal implications that happened when Disney announced they were putting Black Widow directly to streaming and then Scarlett Johansson sues because that goes against the contract and it's bad for her image. It projects the idea of somebody who can't open a movie theatrically. Well, the thing is, all these people get paid off and so they're just mum about it usually. But like, you want to work with Warner Brothers if there's a possibility they just shut something down instantly and write it off as a tax write-off? Like, that's a bad image, period. I wonder, did they announce this themselves or did somebody figure this out? Because this seems like something like, if they could just continually delay Batgirl and then eventually, like, it goes away, then that could be in their favor. But the way that it was, the news came out, that's bananas and kind of, like, blowing up in their face. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, the CEO, the new CEO of Warner Brothers, David Zaslov, kind of made the news because he had this meeting of the Warner executives where he just took over and he was grilling them on all the bad business decisions that were made. And one of them was Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho. And he said, okay, you didn't think this movie was going to make a profit. Why did you greenlight it? And they said, well, Clint has been with us for 40 or 50 years. He's delivered many hits for us. Uh, it's a relationship that we felt was worth fostering. And he said words to the effect of there are no favors. This is a business. We don't owe anybody anything. Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, was Cry Macho a good investment? I mean, maybe not. But, but it was probably almost nothing. Like a Clint Eastwood movie is not like even $90 million. I mean, what what is a bad investment is cultivating an atmosphere where you say, this person, this this legend of the screen, this person who has delivered so many hits, this person who's so widely beloved, none of that matters. All that matters is uh, the exact balance sheet of what's making money at this exact moment. I mean, it, it's it's short sighted. Yeah, it's a classic thing. Is like if your movie doesn't make tons of money, then you're gone. You that's it. Like filmmakers are done. They can't exist. They'll always just be new filmmakers. They'll make one, maybe two movies. And that's all that'll happen. It's like kind of what's happening in mainland Chinese cinema now, that there can't be directors anymore, that they make one or two and then they're done. That's it. Like you, you never see names very much that reappear over and over again. Okay. Off that depressing topic. I want to talk about something that I recently got in the mail and I just devoured incredibly quickly. What is good in cinema right now? Well, zines are good. Uh, me and Will, we've talked about how uh, much we love zines in the past. What are some good ones that you read regularly now, Will? Well, you know, one thing about zines is so many of the ones that are actually made today are like they're they're sort of genre horror grindhouse type zines. Shock cinema is one that we really like. Yeah, shock cinema is kind of on the on the edge of being a magazine. I say zines as in I like zines more than I like magazines. Because there's more passion there. There's more specificity, I feel. I mean, for years, we used to love Cinema Sewer, which recently ended oh, its so good. publication. I mean, just one of the very best. I love Lunch Meat, the VHS scene that kind of semi-regularly publishes. Whenever they have a new issue, it's always quite beautiful. But you were just holding in your hand an example of a zine that is actually not kind of genre, horror- exploitation oriented it's it's something else yep this is a zine uh called bombass a journal of film and funnies i'm holding in my hands issue one and what's really cool about this is actually 
published by a theater, the Beacon Theater in Seattle. And it's edited and written largely by Nick Pinkerton. This is like a film lover's zine that when you crack it open, it's just filled with so much great content, so much great art, which you don't usually see unless it was cinema sewer. Like there's a auteur pale ki- olds, which is a garbage pale kids parody of a bunch of directors. There is uncut interview with Bud Bedeker that was supposedly censored a little bit. And now you get to see it in full. You also get like a bunch of great little comic strips, like one about a secret cinema tech on the East River. You get an interview with the uh, documentarian Wang Bing. Like this is the kind of stuff that I always hope for when I would pick up you know zines or anything film based and this is like the ultimate version most of the issue is composed of a long conversation between nick pinkerton and the cinematographer sean price william talking about late period blake edwards i mean come on like, ah, this is the good stuff that's great so yeah i mean it's possible it's sold out right now but if it's not it's not if you go to the beacon theater website you can buy a, an issue so bombast Issue one, I understand that there will be an issue two. Issue one is excellent, uh, highly recommended, and just a great smorgasbord of stuff. Yeah, I want to encourage, like, if you run a cinema, you should be putting out zines, like, they don't need to be as slick as Bombast, which is basically, you know, a magazine based on its layout, paper quality, its full color, but, like... You know, the idea of like cinemas, video stores, putting out little periodicals like this, ah, it just fills my heart with joy. 